What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey, Boise. It's lead producer Frankie Barnhill. Before we get into today's show, I have a favor to ask. We need about 100 people to fill out our quick listener survey, and I hope you'll be one of them. It's all multiple choice, and it won't take more than five minutes, I promise. Plus, if you take the survey, you'll be eligible to win a $250 Visa gift card. Go to citycast.fm slash survey right now. Again, that's citycast.fm slash survey. Thanks. Today on CityCast Boise, we like to think of Boise as a place where all are welcome, but our history has some dark secrets of exclusion. To mark Pride Month, Graham McBride is here to walk us through a 1950s scandal where more than a dozen gay men were arrested. We're talking secrecy, prejudice, and how the Boys of Boise story still has echoes today. It's Tuesday, June 6th. I'm Emma Arnold, and this is what Boise's talking about. Hi, Graham. Hey, Emma. So good to have you back. Why don't you start us out by just telling us who were the boys of Boise? Sure, yeah. It's a catchy name for a scandal that uh, ended up involving over a thousand people in Boise in the 1950s. Kind of in short, it was a a homophobic witch hunt that aimed to aid society, but ultimately just destroyed the lives of over a dozen men and damaged the reputation of Boise nationally. So let's start with like a little background here. Set the scene for us. It's the 1950s. Homosexuality is still punishable by law, right? Is that true? Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah. Um, you know, laws against homosexuality uh, have existed in English law since the 1500s. And the laws of the U.S. are based on English law. And, you know, a lot of those precedents uh, have carried over into the present day. The Laws have changed slightly over the years, but Idaho's crimes against nature law did, and it still does, criminalize anal and oral sex, uh, historically including consensual sex, and has even before the state's founding. And at the time, the law was even broader and was so vague that it, it said that they were crimes against nature, which were too improper to, to describe into law. I want to talk about, uh, before we like get deep into this, I want to talk about the Kinsey Report and how that sort of ties into this entire situation. The Kinsey Reports refer to two books that were written by Alfred Kinsey, uh, who was a pioneering sex psychologist. He conducted a series of interviews of thousands of people across the nation, and it really was a sexual education for the nation. Uh, It introduced much of America to sex and shocked moral purists who felt it showed a perversion of society. There were a lot of people who had 
grown up without any sort of sexual education. Um, the Kinsey scale is something that is still used today um, as kind of a measure of, of sexuality and the idea that sexuality is a spectrum rather than, you know, a binary. And uh, it really opened up America to the idea of, of sex and especially introduced the idea that, that homosexuality was uh, commonplace. It existed in every culture, in every society, and therefore, by extension, existed wherever you lived. Really, like it sounds like it held a mirror up to American society and made them sort of like come to terms with the fact that their sexuality wasn't as heteronormative or binary as they felt it was. And you mentioned like um, the witch hunt piece of that earlier. And it, I want to ask you, is was like McCarthyism a big piece of this as well? Definitely, definitely. I think it's important to remember just kind of Cold War paranoia, um, this idea that uh, at any moment, any other power in the world could destroy the entire planet. I mean, that's like that, that definitely very threatening. And then in the you know broader political sense, we have folks uh, like famously Senator Joseph McCarthy, you know, there's the the greater red scare that I think a lot of people are familiar with. But then, you know, part of that was also what they call the lavender scare, uh, which was really targeted against queer people that came to a head in 1953 when there was a kind of a purging of, of homosexuals throughout uh, the federal government, helped expand expose this idea that there was there were queer people all around you all the time and so even in the federal building down the street there had been uh up until 1953 potentially queer people working there um and you had been potentially exposed to them So we have these 16 men arrested between October 1955 and the spring of 1957. And what crimes were they charged with? There's two really different crimes here. Um, You know, one involving adult men taking advantage of their social position by seducing, potentially intoxicating and paying for sex with teenagers. However, the second crime, um, which you know, under our more contemporary, sophisticated understanding of homosexuality, we've generally accepted in society, and that's consensual sex between uh, adults of the same gender. Um, Twelve of the 16 men arrested were only charged with with crimes related to consensual sex acts uh, between adults. So let's talk some specific cases. So the first arrests came out with uh, Charles Brokaw, uh, Vernon Castle, and Ralph Cooper. An article in the Idaho Statesman that was published on October 31st, 1955. There is uh, a quote from a uh, probation officer who had gotten involved in the case. And he had said that he had you know, spoken with several youths and he believed that there was over a hundred young minors under the age of 18 who had uh, been involved with, with various men, um, which started you know, quite a, a scandal and a real fear uh, in, in society, uh, in culture of Boise fueled by you know local media attention it led to even more arrests 
Um, and it really peaked in the spring of 1956. And that's when a gentleman named Joe Moore, uh, who was the vice president of Idaho First National Bank, was arrested. He was a prominent man in town, uh, and this really kind of set a turning point in the investigation and started to kind of change public opinion about uh, the goals of this investigation. Previously, you know, most of the men who had been arrested um, were not well known. I think uh, the general public um, were willing to accept an idea that they were guilty of, you know, some heinous acts. Uh, but as soon as they started seeing people that they recognized, people who they had sat across from um, and had a conversation with and started to humanize the subject, um, they realized that the investigation was 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 kind of going too too far and eventually started to kind of this is when we started to kind of see a uh, turn down of the of the investigation most people feel like really kind of completed itself um, in 1957 and that's when uh, Mel Durr uh, was arrested Mel Durr was another recognizable uh, local figure um, he was a theater director and, uh, you know, was open among friends about his, his homosexuality, lived as openly as one could safely in, in 1955, you know, according to his own statements, had only engaged in, you know, consensual sex with, with adults. Because he was such a, uh, an openly queer person in town, uh, he was considered to be a threat, and especially because he worked with young people. So it was really important to local police uh, to get Mel Durr. Um, he had, uh, with the intention of kind of just recusing himself from the whole situation, he moved to San Francisco um, when the trial began to heat up and uh, was eventually actually extradited from San Francisco, Boise's uh, sheriff, uh Doc House, who he and his wife drove down to San Francisco and personally uh, picked up Mel Durr, uh, which, you know, the local San Francisco police um, were shocked to hear that they would have, you know, driven so far to uh, extradite him for a crime that they said that they wouldn't have even, you know, driven over the bridge to Oakland um, to get someone for but he ended up, they took him back to Boise and uh, he was charged in sentence and he was sentenced with probation. However, he did have to serve some prison time. And while he was in prison, he got potentially set up. Um, he uh, was engaging in a sexual relationship while he was in prison and ended up having to serve uh, seven years in the state penitentiary. Wow. Wow. Seven yeah. years. Wow. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this just really kind of started to really kind of give people a bad taste in their mouth about the whole situation, that it was involving people who they generally liked and uh, that it was just starting to really kind of feel like a witch hunt and really starting to kind of just pull at the social fabric of the whole city. You, you mentioned it got like local media attention, but is this otherwise like a well-known story? Did it get national attention at the time? And like, what about since then? Is this something that's gotten, I mean, as you're describing this situation with Doc House, I'm like, why have I never seen a movie of Doc House and his ho a horrid little mm -hmm. wife driving down to pick up Mel Durr? I want that movie 
immediately, right? (laughs) I agree with you. I mean, I think there is uh, a lot of potential for this. You know, at the time, it was still, you know, a somewhat well-known story. Uh, Time Magazine published an article in December of 1955, um, which was, you know, a pretty scathing article. It made uh, Boise sound like a a pretty unsophisticated podunk town um, that was, like, obsessed with sex and obsessed with curing this thing which you know any new yorker uh had learned to live with you know years ago and it also got picked up you know by tabloid uh journals of course um and you know loved to pick up on the the local gossip um and so it was definitely nationally known uh, about 10 years after the incident a journalist named john Jurassi uh, published a book called The Boys of Boise, and he's the one who coined the term uh, Boys of Boise. And he went to Boise and he investigated and he interviewed folks. Then later in 2001, there was a, a documentary film called The Fall of 55 that was made um, and is a really nice resource because it has some great interviews with folks who were personally involved in the case um, who have now uh, since passed. And I think it's ultimately really important that we remember the story, that we retell the story, and that we you know, watch out for any potential missteps we may be making towards the direction of this reoccurring. Yeah. Before we started talking, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about how you were like, there's not like a plaque, you know, like that hasn't been commemorated in any way. And and I think, you know, people are forgetting this story. What's the aftermath of all this? You know, like, like, have we learned the lessons? You know, do you think Boise is forgetting? Do we need, does this need, story need more light on it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, it definitely deserves uh, more light um, and it deserves more of a positive light. There's a lot of shame that's involved there. It shows to me as a queer person uh, living here that there have always been queer people here. That said, there have been definitely real attempts to, you know, uh, erase people. And uh, one of the what I think of as the most blatant uh, forms of that is the urban renewal of the 1960s, most prominently, where swaths of downtown, blocks and blocks and blocks of downtown were bulldozed to the ground. The buildings that were there, it was considered uh, what they called blight. There were queer people meeting in bars downtown. The YMCA was downtown. The Greyhound Station was downtown. Um, a lot of the the kind of central places uh, that are involved in this story have all been removed decades ago, forgotten, no plaques, no memories. And going so far as to the point that one of the the events leading up to the building of the Table Rock Cross, which was erected in 1956, was part of this idea of kind of whitewashing Boise, of showing this general moral goodness that it that although you know Time Magazine was saying that we were you know a small town obsessed with sex, like we had a big cross on the hill that was illuminated and showing that we were a good moral Christian place. And the aftermath of this was that potentially hundreds of people uh, left Boise. Over the decades, many more just chose not to come to Boise because of a negative reputation it had. 
um, and an unwelcoming attitude that it had. And it really set back uh, Boise's uh, LGBT uh, movement. Uh, Boise did end up having its first uh, Pride um, in 1990. Which I was at. You were at? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I know. Isn't that wonderful. wild? I know. That's cool. I only found out that was the first one a, like uh, a little bit ago. And I was like, oh, holy shit. How cool to be at the first Pride, you know? Very, yeah. very cool. Yeah. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, that's really, it's really, uh, you know, I've been doing some, you know, more research about, uh, you know, Boise Pride in its early years. And it's really amazing to see um, just the dedicated individuals who were willing to to step out there, even if they had grown up in the shadows um, or, you know, directly involved with the scandal, they were willing to, you know, stand in front of the Capitol and and wave a flag and proclaim that they were here and, you know, had allyship and support, which is a true testament to the strength of the community. Man, that that is actually such a good point to think about. Uh, a lot of the elder queers who were there had lived through this, had yeah. been there for this. And, it, it you know, it makes me think like, like what this story says about Boise today, you know, how do you put this into context with what we're seeing with politics and policing queer stories? What does that make you think like of, of for right now? I think it's important to um, remember that anytime we other people for any reason, we really run the risk of actually causing damage and ultimately harming our general culture. So I think it's important to remember the past and remember that although this was 60 years ago, it still feels very present. And we have come a long way. And I think it's important to uh, remember that although we see so much progress there, there's so much real change that can be made. You know, Idaho is still one of 14 states that has consensual sodomy laws on the books. So, you know, the, the threat isn't gone. I think it's important that as we are moving forward and starting to gain, you know, acceptance in society, um, but then also balance that with real hard laws and real hard protections for people. Well, Graham, thank you so much. This is such a fascinating story. I could deep dive on it for a month with you because it's just so, so interesting and so wild how many people that they they pulled in and questioned and harassed. So thank you so, so much for this. We really appreciate you coming in and, and filling us in. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, it was great chatting with you. And before you head out, AP News is reporting that two families are taking Idaho's ban on gender affirming care for minors to court. They're being represented by the ACLU, who says the law violates transgender children's right to equal protection and their families due process rights. The ban, stemming from House Bill 71, signed by Governor Little, goes into effect next January. That's all for today here on CityCast Boise. If you enjoyed the show, you're going to love our Hey Boise newsletter. Check it out and subscribe. We'll be back tomorrow morning talking about the best patios and rooftops for summer hangs. Bye. Bye.